It's great to be here uh, at Natoa in Minnesota. Perhaps that's why, as I look out over this group, all the women are strong, <laughs> the men are good-looking, and the policy proposals are above average. <laughs> but I'd act like to actually uh, uh, choose um, for, as the intellectual uh, foundation for our discussion today um, the words of uh, Minnesota's favorite son from Hibbing, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, and his wise observation that you'd better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone because the times, they are a-changing. That's the challenge that we all face. You know, Steve and I were talking earlier about the importance of working together, about us in government working together, about the importance of working together with industry and, uh, and, uh, and other players. Um, that's our challenge. The times are changing, and how are we going to meet that challenge? There's no doubt that high-speed broadband, both wired and wireless, is changing the economic underpinnings of our country and the lifestyles of our people. Those who embrace that broadband-driven change will define the future. Those that don't, well, they'll sink like a stone. NATOA and the FCC are swimming to a common goal of making sure that communities across America, whether large or small, have access to robust broadband networks that deliver the benefits of broadband connectivity to everyone. But you may have noticed that not everyone is swimming alongside us. There are those who seek to block the competitive forces that can produce faster, cheaper, better broadband. There are those who make it difficult to build out the infrastructure necessary for the broadband future. And there are those with which both you and we have to contend who would use changes in technology as an excuse to sidestep the responsibilities that network operators have always had to those who use their networks. Today I'd like to visit about our responsibility to overcome this resistance and ensure that our nation has the networks necessary for the jobs, the economic growth, and the quality of life that will determine our nation's place in the 21st century. Yeah, that's a pretty dramatic statement. And yes, it's that important. Our nation's place in the 21st century. And yes, I know that it's a lot easier to say than to do. 
you and your positions in your communities, and my colleagues and I in our positions at the FCC have responsibilities, not just to the consumers and networks of today, but also to the consumers and networks of tomorrow. But here's the reality that's confronting us. We need faster networks in more places. I agree totally with Tony's observation about the broadband deficit. And I get frustrated, as I know Tony said he did, and I'm sure the rest of you do, seeing the charts where the U.S. ranks in comparison to broadband speeds of other nations. Table stakes for the 21st century is 25 megabits a second. And winning the game means that consumers need to be able to get at least 100 megabits and more. The best way to get there is competition. Unfortunately, today, there's an inverse relationship between competition and throughput. Three quarters of American homes have no competitive choice for 25 megabits. And that includes almost 20% who have no choice at all. Another challenge we face is how wireless is increasingly critical as a broadband pathway. The 21st century is going to be defined by the networks that marry the ever-increasing computing power of Moore's Law with the invisible delivery of wireless spectrum. Our generation has been self-congratulatory about connecting people Seven billion connections in a world, a planet populated by seven billion people. But you and I must plan on what happens next. Steve and I were talking earlier. The forecasts are that by 2020, and that's only six years away, by 2020, there will be 50 billion connected devices as Moore's Law drives down the size and cost of remote computing power, and it's all connected invisibly by wireless. And into that kind of environment, openness is key. If networks are going to deliver on their possibilities, they have to be open. Blocking, discriminating, or, deg or degrading service for economic gain is contrary to the promise of broadband networks. Yet today we have no protections to assure that kind of openness on the Internet. We must have rules that will establish that an open Internet is a sine qua non of broadband. <laughs> now, a minute ago, I spoke about the responsibilities of networks. For the better part of a century, 
There's been a set of principles that has defined the relationship between those who build and operate networks and those who use them. I call this the network compact. And our goal as regulators and policymakers is to assure that these principles continue to define that relationship in the future. These principles include access both to networks and on networks, interconnection. By definition, a network is a series of connections. In the broadband world, the Internet isn't a thing. It's a connection of networks. Third, consumer protection. You know, technology has been pushing the laws of physics, but nobody has changed the laws of human nature or economics in which people would want to take advantage of their situation and somebody needs to protect them, protect the public. Fourth, public safety. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But it has to be, it must be, the underlying deliverable of all networks. And finally, the fifth item in the network compact, national security. In a world in which networks are now attack vectors, we have to make sure that those networks are secure and safe. There are those who would argue that the move from analog networks to IP, Internet Protocol Networks, changes these principles. They are wrong. The form these principles or these responsibilities may take may change in an IP world. But the principles do not, and they should never go away. As we transition to an all-IP world, the challenge confronting those of us in this room is how do we prepare, how do we, I'm sorry, how do we preserve these values that we have come to expect from our networks while at the same time seizing the opportunity that the new networks promise. So let's address, address those issues head on. And let's start with competition. Competition works. And how we behave determines whether there will be competition. The existence of four national wireless carriers, for instance, is an important priority, and we work to protect that priority. Similarly, there cannot be effective competition in wireless without new spectrum and without assuring that the most advantageous low-band spectrum is available to all competitors. We're doing both of those as well. The advantages of competition are so obvious and ingrained in the American psyche that many communities have stepped up to facilitate that level of competition where the private sector will not. 
And we saw ample examples of that and the benefits of that in the awards today. Communities are listening to the needs of their citizens and enterprises, engaging community stakeholders, and focusing on delivering competitive broadband services to respond to those needs. As you know, and as Tony has mentioned, Wilson, North Carolina, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, have petitioned the FCC to preempt the laws enacted by their state legislatures that prohibit them from expanding their community-owned broadband networks. There are currently laws in 19 states that impose restrictions of one kind or another on such local community decision-making. The absolute opposite of what the senator and the representative have done here in Minnesota. We will make our decision on those petitions on the record and on the merits. And I'm afraid that's all I can say about this today. <laughs> However, I do consider you, I do encourage you to consider how local choice and competition can increase broadband opportunities for your citizens. I love the story of Lafayette, Louisiana, where the local incumbent fought the city's fiber network tooth and nail, bringing multiple court challenges and triggering a local referendum on the project. Thankfully, none of the challenges to prevent deployment, none of it prevented that deployment. 62% of the voters approved the network in a referendum, and the Louisiana Supreme Court unanimously sided with the city. But it cost them three years. But when the network was finally built, the community experienced the benefits of competition. No surprise, the local cable operator decided it was time to upgrade his network. We believe in competition. Competition works. Everybody ought to have the opportunity to provide for competition. Because local choice and competition are about as American as you can get. principles that we've talked about can play an important and essential role in assuring America's future. And here's where you and other local officials become critically important. If the infrastructure necessary to build out both wired and wireless broadband networks doesn't receive the prioritization that it warrants as a major national initiative, a major national imperative, then all the efforts to achieve faster, cheaper, and better broadband service that will enhance our nation's competitiveness, create quality jobs for our fellow citizens, and introduce services that will redefine both our commerce and our culture will be for naught. 
I know that it's often a zoning matter in which you or many of you are as much an observer as we are. In those instances where some of you play a role, however, I encourage you to be proactive. And in those instances where it's others who have the authority, I urge you to stand up for your telecommunications responsibilities to the United States of America. I understand very well, very real and strong, not in my backyard sentiments. Everyone wants cell phone service, but nobody wants cell phone antennas in their neighborhood. Everybody wants access to state-of-the-art transmission service, but no one wants the neighborhood streets ripped up. It reminds me of another non-Dylan folk song that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> but what we're talking about is a national priority. It's about the maintenance of our economic leadership. It's about America continuing to be the home of innovation. We must find ways to enable the extension and the expansion of broadband. Local officials with permitting authority have a special obligation to both their communities and to their nation and a larger society. It is simply impossible to have the connectivity our nation requires without the necessary infrastructure. And while there is an understandable desire to engage in cognitive dissonance of wanting connectivity but not its consequences, as policymakers, we must resist within reason such myopia. In that regard, we must build on and expand the creative thinking that has been the hallmark of the good work of, that you have done to facilitate advanced broadband builds around the country. It's great that NATOA has developed best practices on tower siting and is updating those practices. As I understand it, there's also a guide that you've done on rights of way. But it's 12 years old. Things have changed a bit in a dozen years. I encourage you to update your, uh, your rights of way guide. You have the ability to develop national best practices that embrace strategies that have been shown to work in today's technological and economic environments. Strategies that embrace new technology and new ideas to facilitate the timely deployment of wired and wireless broadband. You know, reference was made, I think Tony, or I think uh, uh, it was made earlier, Tony made it, um, about Google um, and Google's application that got 1,100 cities around the country. They developed a city checklist to aid them in determining where they should invest in gigabit fiber. And the checklist contains a list of simple issues, things such as timely and accurate information about the access to poles and conduits, 
These low-cost steps are relevant to all broadband providers, not just Google. And we must bring those insights to all localities. At the FCC, we will use our authority to attack the broadband deployment challenge. We will work with you on those guidelines that you're working on, Steve, so that national best practices are included in what we call our Agenda for Broadband Competition, the ABCs of consumer choice in the 21st century. We will also move on our own authority. Last Friday, I proposed to my colleagues a new set of federal policies on the siting of wireless facilities. The proposal will take concrete steps to immediately and substantially ease the burdens associated with, it, with deploying wireless equipment, particularly the co-locations and deployments of small cells that can be installed unobtrusively on utility poles, buildings, and other existing structures. At the same time, my proposal preserves the frontline authority of local and tribal governments to determine which structures are appropriate for wireless deployments, as well as the authority to enforce building codes, electric codes, laws related to health and safety, and to require companies to use camouflage or concealment designs. <laughs> the Commission will vote on this at our next open meeting on October 17th. There's another component of our broadband responsibilities, and that's video programming. Many of you got into this business through video programming, as did I. We've been hearing a lot lately that access to video is necessary for broadband deployment because consumers increasingly watch video online, and that translates into more demand for video quality broadband. So if we can make it easier for video choices to come to communities, we should be able to incent more broadband to come to communities. Broadband becomes more economically viable, we are told, when it's bundled with video services. In a perverse way, then, how localities handle video competition can determine whether they will have broadband competition. I want to close by emphasizing one other place that we must work together, and that's public safety. Robust, accessible 911 service is essential to our shared mission of public safety. The transition to all IP communications raises serious new challenges for 911. You know, we're used to thinking about 911 outages as a result of acts of nature, you know, a hurricane, a tornado, or flooding. But there's a new threat. The emerging next generation 911 system is more complex than legacy 911 systems and relies more extensively on infrastructure resources and the relationships 
and relationships that are multi-state or national even in scope. It is supported by a large number of service providers, including new entrants that are offering new niche functionalities. Innovation is good. We want to promote innovation. And we want NG911 to support new forms of emergency communications. But the creation of new complex systems for which no one is responsible and where the system as a whole lacks reliability and resiliency is not acceptable. This threat is real and is growing. In April, as Tony knows from first-hand experience, citizens in seven states lost access to 911 for six hours. Six hours! There was a story that I was told of a woman who was home alone with her young child and heard an intruder in her house and called 911 40 times unsuccessfully because the network was down. More than 5,600 911 calls did not get through because of a software glitch in an outsourced database. In August, there was a 911 outage in one of the nationwide wireless networks. And there was an outage in Vermont that knocked out 911 service statewide for nearly an hour. The fact that these outages occurred and the common issues that they raise are evidence of the challenge we face and suggest that we are at risk of experiencing far worse failures if we don't take action now. We recognize that states and local governments also have long-standing and significant responsibilities for 911 service within their jurisdictions. We believe the best approach is a partnership between the FCC and state and local authorities to ensure that there are no gaps in the reliability of the entire NG911 system. The FCC staff has worked closely with state and local officials to investigate the outages that I've talked to you about and others. And at our open meeting next month, October 17th, I'm sorry, it's later this month now, isn't it? At our, at our open meeting in 17 days, we will be presenting the findings of this investigation as well as recommendations for concrete steps to promote end-to-end -end reliability and accountability of the 911 system. The critical point is this. Neither we at the federal level nor you at the state and local level have the ability to ensure end-to-end 911 reliability on our own. We must work together. And we must work together not just on 911, but on all the topics that we discussed today. This is what Steve and I were talking about before we came up here. When competitive broadband options don't exist, let's work together 
to create an environment that encourages investment that switches on America's competitive genius. When there's no broadband availability at all, let's work together to get the infrastructure deployed by any and all entities who are willing to step up to meet the challenge. When providers begin to retire legacy networks for newer technologies, let's work together to make sure that the expectations of consumers and businesses continue to be met, especially for the provision of public safety services like 911. For the times, they are a changing. Let's work together to embrace the new opportunities and to build on the opportunity that high-speed broadband creates for our country. Thank you very much.